Good morning, church. It's great to have you with us this morning. Only one month till spring. One month. So good. <laughs> Apparently, it doesn't start until November. It's great to have you with us, especially if you're new or visiting. I've seen a few new faces. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. And I've got the great privilege to bring God's word to us uh, this morning. We're in this series, To Live is Christ. And we've been going through the book of Philippians at an incredibly slow pace, but it's been awesome. It's so wonderful. Uh, again, today, most of my sermon is, is about one point, And you think, man, I could even shorten this, do two sermons on this. But we haven't. So, this morning we're in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Open up your Bibles there for us. Uh, Philippians chapter 4 from verse 2. Yesterday, as I left here just after midday, man, I was just praising God for this passage and for how He was applying it to my own life and convicting me uh, as a dad. And I really want to encourage you as parents to go and reflect about how the truths of this passage can shape your parenting. Even though this isn't really about parenting, you'll see what it is about in a minute. But yeah, I really want to encourage you to do that. I think it'll change your relationship with your children if you apply this to your parenting. So do it. Philippians chapter 2 from verse 4. I'm reading from the ESV and it'll be up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. Philippians chapter 4 from uh, verse 2. I entreat you, Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by, side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father God, you have indeed been faithful to your people through the Lord Jesus Christ in summertime and wintertime and spring and autumn, harvest time, all time you are faithful to us. And we pray, Lord, that you continue that this morning, that you would speak to us, continue to address your people through your word, and Lord, especially that we might grasp the truths of this passage, that we might take hold of the wonderful promises in them, and that we would listen to the instruction and be obedient to the commands we find in here, that our church might be united and that we might be a people of peace here and outside in our culture. 
And we pray this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm going to show you a photo, uh, and you're not allowed to laugh, okay? Have a look at this photo. It's quite famous. Um, So this is Greta Thunberg, if you don't know. And this was her as a 16-year-old. She's busy giving a speech at the United Nations Climate Summit in New York on the 24th of September 2019. Now, what I was wondering is what are some words, maybe don't shout them out, that come to your mind when you look at this picture? For me, anger is the first one. Not not that I'm angry. Um, You know, her face and the pointing of the finger. uh, She obviously doesn't agree with something or someone and, um, and now there seems to be some sort of conflict. Uh, maybe you're thinking she's unhappy, unlike Donald Trump, who jokingly tweeted that she seems like a very happy young lady. Uh, or maybe you're thinking, legend, what a legend. Maybe Greta is a hero of yours in your eyes. Now, what we can say for certain is this, is that our world is not a place of peace. Um, and, and I, I think this speech of Greta back then, you'll probably remember it well, is a good example. And maybe you're thinking, Matt, Donna, you're just over-exaggerating. It's one speech. Maybe someone lost their cool a bit, but you're over-exaggerating. But I'm not, I don't think. Think of the people that she's addressing, the United Nations. Our world is in so much conflict and chaos and disagreements and division and tension that we have a body tasked to try and unite us all. Think about the mess recently in South Africa, the anti-lockdown protest in Sydney last weekend, Uh, or what about the tension between our states and people to do with COVID and how to go about dealing with it? There, There seems to be a lot of anxiety and tension. There are disagreements about tactics, and it's causing division. So how are we to live in these times, and in general, just in a world that's fragmented and frustrated? Well, we are to be God's people of peace. That's what we see in our passage today. In our passage, there is a promise of peace for God's people in two spheres uh, that all Christians live, the church and the culture. And we see these promises of peace in verse six, I mean in verse seven, sorry, and verse nine. And what the Bible teaches, as you will see today, is that there will be conflict in both spheres, actually. But we are also instructed and even commanded how to respond in these situations so that we might experience the peace of God in the church and have the God of peace walk with us in our culture. So there's only two points this morning. Uh, God's people of peace uh, in church conflict and in cultural conflict. So let's start with the first one, inch conflict. We see that in verses 2 to 7. Now, I think we often see verses 2 and 3 together, right? And you can probably see how they fit under this idea of conflict within the church. But verses 4 to 7 seems harder to connect. And I think we often see these verses just as these kind of random one-liners uh, that this kind of finishing the book, but it's not really finishing uh, the book. Or maybe that's just how I've always read it. But I think it is related to church conflict. And these two sections, actually, uh, which is our two points, 
are very clear in the passage. You see, each section begins with an address. Firstly, you've got Yodia and Syntyche in verse 2. And then the second address is all the brothers and sisters in the church in verse 8. And then in each section, it also finishes with a promise of peace. You've got the first one, which is the peace of God in verse 7, and the second, the God of peace in verse 9. So those are clearly defined sections in our passage. And I do believe this first section, don't get me wrong, begins quite narrow, right? So it's just got these two women, then it talks about other people and other fellow workers, and it kind of finishes with things that um, everyone should do uh, at all times and in every situation, not just in church conflict. So it kind of starts narrow and it broadens out. Uh, but nonetheless, even though this section broadens out, it derives from this conflict and it is derived from it and related. And I hope you'll see that with me. Now, as I said earlier, about 80% of the sermon is point one. So I've got these three little sections to help you follow me. And I want us to start firstly by looking at the conflict, okay? Let's look at this church conflict from verse 2. Read it with me again and keep your Bible open so you can follow with me. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, so we've got two women who are at odds with each other. There seems to be some disagreement of sorts. And, and you know what? They are genuine Christians who love Jesus. Okay? Paul is so sure of that that he says their names are in the book of life. This, this kind of book of life idea is meant to remind them to, uh, you know, that, they're, that they're citizens of heaven and they should live as such. And we've seen that before in our series. You see, just like they would have had this um, civic register uh, in Philippi, of all the citizens of the city, so this book in heaven, where their names are put down by God himself, once they receive heavenly citizenship, is a reminder of that. We also know that these, women's, these women have been good heavenly citizens, as they've lived for their eternal home, not just for the here and now. Okay, Look, they've labored side by side with Paul and others in the gospel. They were gospel partners with Paul, just like we saw Timothy and Epaphroditus, remember, uh, in chapter 2. But it seems that since they've kind of moved away from Paul, and maybe the Paul, Paul has moved away, uh, there seems to have been some tension. And I think it would be a good guess to say that the conflict arose as they were laboring for Jesus in the church, because that's the language that keeps popping up as they were serving. You know, maybe one wanted to do the women's ministry this way, the other one wanted to do the women's ministry that way. Uh, one wants to reach the lost, you know, by running a soup kitchen. The other one wants to run it by, you know, doing morning tea and having a Bible study. Who knows exactly? But what we do know is that this conflict was enough for Paul to hear about it and to address it, and he even puts names to it, which he doesn't do very often. So these must have been really prominent people in the church, is our guess. But what we also know is this will happen in our church, okay? It will happen here as well. We too are big believers of serving in teams, just like Paul, you know, he had teams of people. And, and there will be conflict in those teams at times. That's to be expected. So the question is, how do we deal with it when it comes up? 
Because you can respond in a way that doesn't bring about the peace of God, and you can respond in a way that it will. And so how does that look like? And that brings us to the second part, which is the solution. Let's look at the godly solution in church conflict. You see, parents, why I was saying thing about this? Conflict, okay, with the kids. That's all I'm going to say. Or maybe it's just when you've got two young boys. All right, so the godly solution to church conflict. The first thing we have to do is found there in verse 2, where Paul urges and encourages these two women to agree in the Lord. Now, the word in the original language is actually the verb to think. And, and so Paul is saying, think the same in the Lord. The NIV translation is actually great here. It says, be of the same mind in the Lord. Have the same mind as Jesus, he says, as you deal with church conflict. And if you've got a good memory, you'll be thinking, man, I've heard that somewhere in Philippians. And you're right. Okay, have a look at Philippians 2 verse 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember that wonderful passage of Jesus who, even though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember that? We as Christians have the same mind that led Jesus to do that. We have that same mind in Jesus. That's what Philippians 2.2 says. And what we must do is to let that Christ-like mind shape us in our conflict. Now just imagine, just imagine what a discussion or a meeting would be like, you know, to resolve conflict if Christians did this. Just imagine the people involving coming in humility. Not, not wanting to achieve their own agendas through this, but wanting to serve everyone else and doing what's best for them. Just imagine everyone laying aside any power that they might have, any uh, position of authority that they might have, and taking a lowly, servant-hearted posture. Just imagine if everyone thought more highly of everyone else in the meeting than of themselves. Man. I'd love to be a conflict coordinator in any church, if that's even a thing. If Christians uh, came with, to me with this same mindset as Jesus, I reckon you'd resolve it just like that. A second attitude that, you know, to help us resolve, uh, resolve church conflict is found in verse 4. And that is to rejoice in the Lord. This one's so important that Paul says it twice, Okay. Now again, this should take your memory back to the beginning of chapter 3. In 3 verse 1, we find the exact same words. Rejoice in the Lord, he says back then. Why does he say that? Well, Paul goes on to say that because through faith in Jesus, we don't have to work ourselves into heaven, but that Jesus has worked us into heaven. And as a result, we have gained the righteousness of God through Jesus' finished work on the cross. And so in short, Paul is saying, our joy doesn't come from what we do, but what Christ has done for us. Our identity is not in our work, but in Christ. Now now imagine um, if people who serve together and they have conflict, imagine if they rejoiced in the Lord as they resolved it. Right? So, so maybe if part of the discussion is stopping a ministry that you've coordinated for many, many years, that's okay. You're not defined by being a ministry coordinator. Your identity is in Jesus. 
Or what if someone hasn't fulfilled their role, you know, according to their role description? And, and, you know, some true and honest conversations need to be had. That's okay. That's okay. You know, like failing to do what's on your role description doesn't define you. Your name is in the book of life. And so you don't, your identity doesn't rest on your failings, but on the success of Christ, your Savior. You can have those conversations easily. Or imagine people getting together to discuss a ministry going forward, right? And you've been probably part of these, and people are throwing out ideas. And often what happens is also they try and show why their idea might be better than yours, you know? Uh, and if, you, if your identity is not rooted in Jesus, you're going to get quite worked up because you hold these ideas very close. Hey, how dare you talk about my idea like that? But if you rejoice in the Lord Jesus... If, if your identity is in him, if you, you know, like if for you, um, you don't worry about what people think of you and your ideas, but you, you just worry about what God thinks of you. And he thinks that you are completely right and good and beautiful and wonderful because of your faith in Jesus. Just imagine how that meeting will be shaped if you act like that, rejoicing in the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord always, friends. As Christians, we should do this in, our, in all of our conflict, um, especially when it comes to uh, people within the church, in our marriages, with our children, and all other relationships. You see, our identity should always be in Jesus. And so we can rejoice in him, we can rest in him, and, 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 and then we can deal with conflict, okay? Imagine every conflict in the church, right, being done while people are rejoicing in who they are in Jesus, instead of who they are in the situation that's being addressed. I think it'll go well. Third attitude that should accompany us in church conflict is found in verse 5. Very short one. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I'm not even quite sure what reasonableness mean um, in some way in this context. But I think again here, the ESV is not helpful and the NIV is better. The NIV nails it. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. That fits better with the context that we see, isn't it? And that is actually what the original word means. It's the idea to be gentle and to bear with one another. It's not to be contentious and self-seeking, but it's putting uh, others uh, before yourself. You see, Christians don't solve conflict by being harsh and putting people down so that they win in the end. No, Christians should be as gentle as Jesus was. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Fourth and last attitude uh, is found in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When there's conflict, we get anxious, don't we? Um, I, I don't. I remember always going to parties. Not always, but when I've been to parties, and there would be um, a, a mate of mine, and his girlfriend might have been invited to the same, and they they broke up recently. And I thought, like, oh my goodness, this is so tense. Like, what if he sees me talking to her, or, or all three of us are together, and it'll be really weird. See, that's what happens when when you're with people who's been in conflict. You can feel the tension. Other times you might be worried about how the other person might take it if you raise this issue with them. Uh, we might be anxious about someone leaving our ministry 
if, we, if, if there's conflict. We, we might even be anxious about a ministry completely stopping and having to end uh, because of conflict. We might even be anxious about a church altogether falling apart because of conflict about ministry. You might even be anxious that things could get physical. And those are all good things to be anxious about. But take your anxieties to your Father. And actually, it doesn't say take your anxieties to your Father. It says take your request to your Father. So let the things that make you anxious turn into request to your Father. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't tear our team apart, but indeed that we'll be bound together more as we deal with this conflict in a godly way. Lord Jesus, you said that evil will not prevail against your church, and so may evil not ruin this conflict that we're going to deal with. May it be done in a godly way and bring about good in your church. You see, something like that. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I don't really like conflict. I don't know if there's anyone that loves seeing it and just wants to jump in there and get in there and sort it out. Maybe that is you, but that's certainly not me. I try and avoid it, okay? And it's taken me many years, actually, uh, to, to raise things in our marriage with, with Beck and to respond properly when she raises things with me. It's not my strength. But you know what? Jesus isn't like me. He's not like that. Did you notice that at the end of verse 5? We are told that the Lord is at hand. He's right there in the conflict. He doesn't run away from it. So right in the middle of this passage about conflict, it's just this random statement, the Lord is at hand. It doesn't seem to be connected with anything, any connected words. And it's just a simple way to say, hey, Jesus is in the midst of all the conflict. He doesn't run away. He's not ashamed of it. He wants to help. He's ready to help us deal with conflict in a godly way like we've seen this morning. And he wants to do it so that we might experience the peace of God. The peace of God is what we're promised. That's the third little bit under this point. And we see this in verse 7. So if we deal with conflict biblically, this is a promise that we can experience. Have a look there with me at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As I've been sharing uh, this morning, I'm sure you've noticed that there are lots of things going on in our hearts and our minds as we think about approaching people and meetings and what things might look like afterwards. But if we deal with it as we've been instructed and even commanded some of these things, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now, what what is this peace of God? Well, it's interesting. The peace of God is the result of Jesus' work on the cross uh, on those people who don't naturally have peace with each other. Does that make sense? Every time Paul talks about the peace of God, it's in the context of conflict. The peace of God is a community matter, the the very thing that will keep us all together. Have a look how Paul puts it here in Ephesians 2 from verse 14 to 16. So he's talking uh, about Jews and Gentiles. For he, talking about Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, for the Jews, there were only two people groups. It was them and everyone else. There was God's people and everyone else. And it caused a lot of hostility and division based around the law. But Paul says Jesus came and he started a new people instead. Okay, he's not trying to make these two people one. Or he's picking one or the other. No, he's saying, I'm going to start from scratch. I'm going to start another new humanity. And when people put their faith in Jesus, they become part of this new humanity and they reconcile to each other in the Lord Jesus because he has killed the hostility that was between them. He is their peace as they are united to him. You see, in Jesus, black and white people can be at peace. Men and women, old and young, rich and poor, wise and foolish, white collar and blue collar. Um, there is no dividing wall that Jesus cannot break down. In that example, it was the law, but there are lots of ones that Jesus breaks down and he becomes our peace. He achieved, listen to this, he achieved on the cross what the United Nations are seeking to do, but they will never be able to do it. That's the truth. He alone can do it. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing, the peace of God in Jesus Christ. And it surpasses human understanding. People cannot wrap their heads around it unless God has saved them. Now, to apply this, Jesus wants to use conflict in his church to bring about this peace. He brings something amazing out of conflict. So don't run from it, please. I I know it's hard. That's me too. But don't avoid disagreements and tension. If you run from it, if you try and avoid it, you'll miss out on the peace of God. You'll be running from the very thing that Jesus wants to use to bring about peace and unity in his church and to guard our hearts and our minds for when he returns. You see, godly conflict allows Jesus to work in us and in others that his peace might be evident to all and that our minds might be blown away by it, and especially for outsiders looking in. All right, so God's people of peace in church conflict. And then the next one, and it's much shorter, don't stress, in cultural conflict. We see this in verses 8 to 9. Now, for us 21st century Westerners, it might be a bit hard to see how verse 8 is about the culture that the Philippian Christians were living in. But the reality is they would have easily noticed that this list of things, each introduced by the word whatever, that's constantly repeated, were things that were highly regarded by the people of their city and in their culture. Have a look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Now, I'm not going to go into these in detail because they might not be the things that Aussies value, okay? But I do want to show you how Paul's method of knowing how to live in a culture that hates Jesus, you know the Jesus that you love so much? 
and who will oppose you at many points. I want to show you how Paul's method uh, goes in knowing how to live in that sort of culture. You see, how do you live in a culture that's in conflict with you and remain at peace about all the different decisions that you need to make as a Christian? Oh, am I, have I become like my culture? Is this the right way Christians should live? I don't know. I'm so worried. Well, let me show you. Firstly, you need to work out whatever is regarded and valued in your society. This will be very broad and very inclusive and, and include a wide range of ideas. That's why that word is repeated all the time. Whatever, whatever, whatever. It's very broad. Whatever. But secondly... Once you've done that, you need to think about which of these are most excellent and most praised by the majority of the culture. We see this step at the end of verse 8. Do you notice the words change? If there is any excellence in this list that you've just made of whatevers, if there is anything worthy of praise out of the list of whatevers, think about these things. You see, we need to narrow things down a bit before we before we start thinking about them. And that's because, you know, drug dealers and bikies have different standards to the most of Aussies, most of the people in our culture. There'd be things that certain people in our country would do that they think is right, but that actually most Aussies would frown upon. And so we need to narrow it down. So we want to consider the most excellent and the most worthy of praise values of our society. And only consider them, not yet do, did you notice that? Not yet do, just consider, but doing is included in the third and last step. And we find that in verse 9. Have a look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the last thing we do as Christians with our shortlist is to measure it against what the Bible says and the very things that we've looked at the Bible and received and embraced. Not only that, we also uh, compare it with those godly people around us whose example we are imitating, like we saw last week. And if we do all of this, this kind of filter, you see the first part of our passage goes from narrow to broad, and then the second one starts very broad and narrows it right down. If we do this, the God of peace will be with you out there in the culture that's in conflict with our Christ. Now notice we won't experience the peace of God like, like we promised in point one. I know it's just a small little change, but that peace, as we saw, can only be experienced by those in Christ, the, the one who has flattened all walls of hostility that's been built between people. But here, that peace cannot be experienced because we're going out into a culture that's not in Christ, but against him. But don't stress, because as you go out into the world and conflict will occur, the God of peace will be with you. You're not alone. I'll finish like this. I think it's worth saying that engaging with a culture that hates Jesus takes effort. You, you can't just get home after a day of conflict, not necessarily fighting, but just feeling the tension and wrestling with what people are saying uh, and what you believe. And that kind of conflict, as, as, as you go into a culture that um, hates your Jesus, our Jesus, you can't just come home, fall on the couch, switch on the TV, uh, you know, have some dinner, 
jump in the shower, sleep, and go back to that same environment. It just won't cut it. You do that long enough and you will drift away slowly and become just like the culture around you. Instead, we need to get home and not switch off our brains and let it be filled by all the rubbish on TV and everything that our culture wants you to hear. But we need to consider, oh, that, you know that conversation I had with John? And oh, I, heard, I heard Peter and so-and-so talk to each other. I overheard that. You need to think about those conversations. And then you want to decide, man, are those things excellent and praiseworthy in our society? And, and, and see if there are things you can take out of it. And then you want to think, well, this, does this fit in the Bible? Will this honor Jesus? Will godly Christians do this? And if so, you want to practice them. Now, why would you do this? Well, in doing so, you'll be finding values and truths that Christianity and our culture agree on. Connections or bridges, maybe you can call it. Um, And by practicing them well, you will strengthen connections with the culture that you live in. And so when things arise, like homosexual marriage or abortions or things that we don't agree on, you connect it in some way. You've built relationships and Uh, that you can then speak openly and honestly and truthfully about these things because of those connections. And who knows? God might just save people through it. All right? God might just brought people into this new humanity, Jesus, break down walls of hostility and bring about a peace even in those relationships. Who knows? But that's it, friends. God's people of peace in church conflict and in cultural conflict. And as you, I'm sure you've noticed, there's some wonderful promises in there to hold on to. There's peace to enjoy as we are united and work in a godly way through conflict. And there's the presence of God with us as we go through it. So let's be his people of peace in these two spheres of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And we do indeed want to rejoice in you, Lord. Thank you so much that we can sit here as people from Australia, South Africa, and other places all around the world, Kiwis and Aussies, getting together because of what you have done. You have united us all. We have seen what you have done in creating this one new humanity. And all the walls of hostility has been smashed down by your work on the cross. We thank you for that. May we rest in who we are in you. And may we um, hold that above all things uh, and not to tie ourselves to ministries or positions, titles or whatever it may be, that as we deal with conflict and deal with each other, we might be humble and lowly, looking out for one another, caring for one another, wanting to do what's best for everyone, Lord. And may you unite us and uh, may we experience this peace that you have won for us, Lord Jesus. Lord, it's just wonderful to know know that you are in this and and you are the best for it because you are the one that's, that's dealt with the biggest conflict that the world has ever seen, the conflict between a holy God and an unholy people. And you have managed to bring those two things together through your work on the cross. How much more can you not do that among us with small little things, pithy little things that we often turn into big things? Would you be with us, Lord, 
May we not shy away from tension and disagreements. May we embrace them knowing that you're there, knowing that you'll work in it to grow us and mature us and unite us more and more under you. Please, Lord, do this for us and help us as we go into a culture that hates you and will inevitably hate us as you've taught us, that we would live there with integrity and honesty and faithfulness to you and make connections that hopefully will lead to eternal salvation for them. And uh, yeah, just strengthen us in that. Walk with us, we pray, Lord. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.